last in this series of Conversations with Jesus. And uh, for the whole semester, 13 weeks now, we've been looking at Jesus' various conversations with people as are recorded for us in the Gospels. In the last couple of weeks, we've looked at some dark ones. We've dealt with cynicism and doubt and despair. And uh, not to get too cheery before the Advent service that we'll have next, I decided I'd talk about opposition and hostility. I'm talking about all these things because they're real. They're real. And we may not always be aware of them, but it's true. Uh, so I, I'm pretty certain there are some of you in this room, you've had a terrible experience with the church at some point in your life. You felt like you or your family were judged, and you're here and you're trying to figure out why you're still interested in God, and uh, you can understand why some people hate the church, or maybe even hate Jesus. It's not all your testimony, but some of you have experienced that, or you know someone that has. It's real. It's happened. And I want to talk about it. So um, I'm going to read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 22, and then pray. So verse 9, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1. It's not John, it's Acts, but it's the right text. Um, we read, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he is praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. Here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Yeah, sorry. For some days he was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. All right. Pray with me if you would. Pray, Lord God, that you would show us great things in your word. Pray that you would show us Jesus in his glory and in his goodness. Pray that you would do this despite our tiredness and our dull minds and our hard hearts and despite my own weakness. 
pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm supposed to open with some like snazzy illustration that immediately draws your attention. I don't have one. So I'm going to give you history because that's much more exciting, right? So the story of the Bible at this point, not the whole Bible, but the New Testament, and all our conversations is that Jesus is coming. When he comes, he comes announcing the kingdom. The first thing he says in Mark is, the kingdom of God's at hand. Let me translate that. The king is here. I'm him. And then he begins to do things that only God can do. Heal the sick, give sight to the blind, raise the dead. He also began to say some very strange things that no human would say. And uh, about halfway through the Gospels, he also begins, strangely, to predict his own death. Those closest to him don't believe him until it actually happens. And then, shockingly to his disciples, even though he had told them beforehand, he rises from the dead. We've had conversations all through that process. And now we're at the very end. We're at the very end, sort of, of Jesus' conversations. He doesn't really have any more conversations uh, until we get to the book of Revelation at the end. This is pretty much the last one. And what's really interesting is that after Jesus comes to his men, assures them, equips them, we talked about that the last few weeks, actually, restores them, answers their doubts, cures them of their cynicism, uh, he equips them to keep doing what he's been doing, to bring the kingdom. And the book of Acts... Is a story of that. How Jesus continues his work through the Spirit, through these disciples, through these followers, and great things happen. You read the book, great things happen. The church grows magnificently despite any expectation. And all along the way, every step of the way, there's opposition. Hostility. It's just the way it is. And that's the way it was during Jesus' ministry. And just before chapter 9, this guy Saul has overseen the death of one of the more promising young men that's a follower of Jesus. He makes sure the task is done. He makes sure the guy is dead. Chapter 8 tells us he's he's at the heart of this persecution in Jerusalem that ends up excommunicating, expelling all the followers. They leave the city. And they flee. And it raises some questions. And one of my favorite uh, writers who writes about these kind of things, I'll put it this way. If the Bible is about an almighty, all-smart God, why is it so full of divine indirection and delay? To ask it another way, if God wants to turn this messed up world into a beautiful city or into a kingdom, why doesn't he just knock some heads together put all the baddies under a big, flat rock, and get on with the job? I think it's a good question. If he's the all-knowing, almighty God, and this is what he wants, why doesn't he just do it? Why is there ongoing hostility and opposition? Why are there still baddies? There are still baddies. There are baddies in Acts 9. There are baddies today. And uh, it often seems when you look at Christianity across the world, that is defenseless in the face of overwhelming military, at times and places, cultural and intellectual powers. We've never faced it here militarily, but in other places, I know pastors and their congregations who've been bombed from the air. There are entire countries that have no presence of Christianity because their governments have persecuted them. And there's no one there that believes the faith. This has happened. Why? 
and, and what are our options and how are we supposed to live? Uh, what often happens is that people live in fear. Chapter 8, they run away. Chapter 9, Ananias, there's a guy here, I want you to go meet him. Uh, why? This guy's done bad things. I don't want to go over there. We live in fear. Or conversely, we strike out in anger. We lash out at that which threatens us. But we're going to see in our text that Jesus, because of who he is as the Lord, who overcomes opposition with his grace, because he's the Lord who overcomes opposition with his grace, we can move toward our enemies. So I'm going to talk tonight about how opposition is real and how Jesus overcomes it, then the opportunity that we have to join in. Okay? So I just want to say real quick, the opposition is real. Paul or Saul's opposition is real. And opposition to Christianity throughout the world is real. And throughout the Bible is real. If you read through the Bible, you'll see this everywhere all the time. It starts in Genesis 2, and it just continues. There's a divine-like, not divine, but divine-like power at work from the beginning that opposes everything God does and wants to tear it down. Wants to disassemble and destroy us and our relationships and our work and everything else. And uh, as soon as Jesus shows up on the scene... Almost immediately, within two chapters in Mark, there are people that want to kill him. He, he comes healing the sick and fixing broken things, and people want to kill him. Okay, the opposition is real, and it continues. Uh, but we're going to focus in pretty much exclusively here on Paul's opposition, Saul's opposition to Jesus and his church. And we see, first of all, that it's passionate. It's red-hot, furious, passionate. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked for letters. So what's happened is uh, he has overseen the persecution in Jerusalem, and it succeeded. They all left, except for the apostles. Everyone has left. The church has been disassembled. And, and like some villain in a Westerner, in like a Western movie it seems, Saul's basically saying to himself, I'm going to get every last one of you. I'm going to chase you down and find you one by one. Man, woman, text doesn't say child, but I can imagine he, he has that in mind as well. Uh, this is a red-hot, passionate, furious, furious dislike for Jesus and his church. And where does it come from? text doesn't tell us, but experience, I think we can figure it out. Um, Paul is a very smart guy. He really is. If you read through his letters, you see he's well-trained. He was uh, very educated. Uh, this is not some toothless renegade uh, who has no sense about him at all. He's very intellectual. And he is convinced that this is wrong and that he's right. And that Christians are wrong and Jesus is wrong and therefore they're dangerous and someone has to do something about it. He has in his mind the moral weight behind him. And so he's inflamed with a zeal to do this. He's passionate. And he's powerful. He really is. He has the passion and he has the power. Again, he's not some dumb renegade. He's a very, very bright man. And he's given the authority, the text tells us in verse 14, to do this. The Romans had given the authority to the temple to do just this kind of thing. And so the temple, the religious establishment, and the political establishment stand behind Paul. And he gets to go out on the full court press and bring the opposition home. And that's what he's doing. Ananias basically sums it up this way. This guy has done much evil to your saints. 
He wants to bring all of us back in chains. And uh, just, you know this, but this is what many Christians around the world face every day. It really is. This is what they face all throughout the world. We're very privileged and grateful. Uh, We should be grateful to live where we don't face this. But this is the daily experience of many. And the result for many of them is that they live in fear. And uh, we can identify with the fear, I think, but it's a little different. Uh, So think a long, hopefully this is a long time ago. Think a long time ago to an instance where you were bullied. Maybe it was a school bus, maybe it was middle school, maybe it was your neighborhood. There was someone in your life, probably maybe it was an older sibling or a cousin. Actually, now I think about it, these are all real. I like multiple bullies. I didn't realize it's right now. It's not good. Um, The last bully, I certainly remember who it was, and this is how it happened. So in sixth grade, this is really shameful. So in sixth grade, instead of going to the school dance like a normal student, I volunteered to go as a chaperone (laughs) to my own dance. (laughs) And at that dance, thinking I was in charge of all the other kids, I noticed in my school a seventh grader who was not supposed to be there. He was there to pick up all the fifth graders. And I had him kicked out. And that guy decided he was going to make my life miserable for as long as possible. And he did. I let him. There were things I did not do that I wanted to do because I was afraid of that guy. And there were things that I shouldn't have done that I did because of that guy. There was a camp that I went to that I enjoyed for three years. My fourth year, we both went, and he made my time there miserable. I did not run from him in fear. I didn't. I tried to engage him, but he wouldn't let me do it. I tried to be friends with him. It didn't work. After years of introspection, sometimes I think I should have punched him in the face and gotten it over with. But that would have been wrong. There was some other way that I was supposed to engage him, and I wasn't mature enough to do it at the time. But I let that fear ruin a lot of things for me. And I think we do that as well. And I I am talking now, I'm going to make it spiritual. For those of us that know Jesus, we are afraid. We're often afraid of people that we think are hostile to us or to our faith or values, and so we won't move toward them. Or or we're afraid that uh, by coming out with our faith, that we're going to jeopardize what people think of us socially. They're going to think we're idiots or stupid. Or, they, uh, or we think we're going to miss out on something socially or some kind of fun. I, I think we really do live in more fear than we realize at times. And we're afraid to move toward people uh, and love them. And it's not, as, it's not like Ananias here in Acts 9, but I think it is real. If we think about it, we have more fear in our lives than we realize. The good news here is that uh, we don't have to live this way, that Jesus overcomes opposition. And uh, I have, I've driven and traveled a lot. I've seen some amazing things on my trips. I've seen the world's largest groundhog in Kansas. Don't, don't stop for that. It's really bad. <laughs> I've seen, in most of my travels, a car do a 720 on the interstate. They survived. But they were freaking out. <laughs> I've seen all kinds of strange things. I've seen a chipmunk on top of a car running around in the sunroof. And I was talking to the person through the window, like, there's a chipmunk on your window. She looks up and she's freaking out. And then, this is where it gets good, a hawk swoops out of the air, snatches it, and flies off. <laughs> Seen some amazing things while traveling in my lifetime. That was craziest, uh, I think. Seen nothing like what Saul sees. 
traveling to Damascus, he's done this before, and in the middle of the day, most likely, struck blind and dumb by Jesus' glory. He doesn't know it's Jesus. It's really interesting. Saul, who's a student of the Scriptures, who knows who God is in his own mind, he's very confident in his religious knowledge. When he's struck down, he hears the voice of the divine being, he, he asks, Who are you, Lord? His confidence already is shaken. I don't know if I know who you are. And uh, the revelation is surprising. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, verse 6. I think we like surprising revelations. You know, who's behind the mask? It's Peter Parker. Who's uh, whatever. Uh, Perhaps one of the more fun ones in the last couple years, it wasn't an identity revelation. It's more like, whoa, I had no idea you could do that, was uh, in 2009. I don't watch these kind of shows because I don't watch shows, but uh, it was on Britain's Got Talent, this 47-year-old, unemployed, rather dumpy lady, <laughs> don't know how to describe her otherwise, who basically takes care of her mother full-time, walked into the stage, and you could see the uh, cynicism of the skeptics. They pan the audience, and you see the audience making eyes at each other. They're mocking this lady before she begins to sing. And then she starts to sing. And it's absolutely amazing. It's Susan Boyle, if you know who she is. And, uh, I mean, the, the judges give her a standing ovation, and, and the audience is just uproariously overjoyed because they've seen her glory. They're shocked by the revelation of her glory. She's got a glorious, beautiful voice. And that's sort of what we have here. Saul thinks Jesus is a loser. He's a Galilean rebel, a false prophet who died and deserved it. And his followers are losers, and I deserve to persecute them. They deserve what I'm bringing to them. They deserve the pain. And he sees Jesus' glory, and he's struck dumb. He has no idea what to do. And uh, it's really interesting. At this point, Saul's mission is over. The offensive is over. The orders are done. And he doesn't know what to do, probably. And Jesus, whom he was just out to persecute, all of a sudden is giving the orders. Saul, go to town, sit and wait. Okay? And then imagine what happens next. I mean, imagine what it's like, trying to imagine what it's like to be Saul. Um, you're really sure you know who God is. You're really sure of your mission, enough that you're willing to put people to death. You're struck dumb by Jesus' glory, this revelation of who he is, and you're sent to a house, and there you go for three days, and you wait. The text tells us later that he's praying. To who? His vision of who God is was just radically undone. About what? What's he praying about for three days? That Jesus won't strike him dead? I mean, actually, that's reasonable. You just killed his followers. Is he in fear for his life? The text tells us Jesus gives him a vision that someone's going to come as an extension of God's own mercy and heal him. But try to imagine what it's like to be Saul for three days, waiting. Am I being sentenced? What's going to happen to me? Your whole view of who God has been changed. And what we see is Saul's been given a vision of Jesus' glory, and now he's going to come to understand his grace. And uh, the text doesn't actually use the word grace, but everything that happens after this is grace. Jesus strikes him down with his glory in verse 5. Saul gets to get up and get going. He deserves death. He deserves to die. Okay? He committed murder of an innocent man. He deserves to die. He's pardoned. 
His past is forgiven. He's healed of his blindness. He's immediately sent someone to care for him. He's adopted into that family, the church. He's given a new mission. He's given the power of the Spirit. Past, present, future, God gives to him. There's a word for that. It's called grace. Jesus gives Saul all kinds of things he doesn't deserve. He's being gracious to him. Jesus wants him. And it's grace that rebuilds, reconstructs, rewires Saul's shattered life. It's Jesus' grace that does. And this is what one uh, theologian, the same one I mentioned earlier, uh, who asked those questions, this is what he calls left-handed power. I love the image of left-handed power. If you're a boxer, none of you are, I think. Uh, although, if a former RUFer who's taking boxing classes right now... Uh, if, if you're a boxer, your left hand is sneaky and subversive. Everyone's expecting it to come from the right, and then you can sneak in the left-handed uppercut, and they're done. And um, that'd be nice. That's what I should have done to that bully back in sixth grade, because <laughs> I'm left-handed. That's not what I should have done. Um, but it's right-handed power that we want. It's right-handed power, the glory, the power, the military might, the shock and awe, the judgment, that's what we trust. That's what we want. What we, want. we want God to crush Saul. We want God to fix all the broken things by punishing all the bad people. We want God to destroy all the, the nasty regimes. And he might. But for the most part, what God has decided to do since way at the beginning of the Bible is to use left-handed power. It's to be subversive and to offer grace. And uh, this theologian, Capon. Uh, Basically, he writes this, This grace may not seem like an exercise worthy of the title of power. But when you think of it, it's power. It's so much power that it's the only thing in the world that evil can't touch. Evil can't change grace or touch grace. God in Christ died for giving. And with the dead body of Jesus, he will, if you will, wedged open the door between himself and the world and said, there, just try and get me to take that back. God is offered to a world that hates and opposes him, Jesus, in his grace. The world deserves the exercise of Jesus' glorious power and judgment. It's opposed to him. And Jesus offers grace that is powerful, that has the power to change hearts. Uh, one of the best illustrations, you can go home and look at this, it'll make you cry, or angry, maybe both, either way it's powerful, uh, is uh, a video of the post-trial hearings of the Green River Killer. The Green River Killer was a uh, serial killer, I believe in the Pacific, Pacific Northwest. I don't remember how many people he killed, but it was over a dozen. They were gruesome and horrible it may have been as many as 30 or 40. Part of his sentencing was he had to listen to the victim's families recount the impact on them of what he'd done. And this went on forever, for days. And during that entire time, he was completely emotionless. No remorse, not a quiver of a lip, not a single tear. Until one guy got up and forgave him. Just said the words, I forgive you. And this guy, the serial killer, completely and totally melted and could not compose himself. Now, I don't know what you think of that. It probably bothers you. It sort of bothers me, too. But it means that grace is powerful. 
Forgiveness is powerful. It has the ability to change lives like nothing else. And that's where your opportunity comes in. Your opportunity. You see, Jesus offers grace. His left-handed power, even to people that oppose him. We want to crush them or run away from them. We want to flee from them in fear or lash out them in anger. But we have an opportunity to join Jesus as he works in this world. Uh, Ananias is as shocked, maybe, as Saul. Not quite, but close. Saul's shocked at who Jesus is. Ananias is shocked. You're going to be merciful to that guy? What, you want him to go to him? You know who this guy is, right? You know what he did? Yeah, I know. Go to him. Why should we be surprised? Why is he surprised? I mean, God is passionate. Saul was passionate. God's passionate. Saul pursued his enemies to death. Jesus pursues his people all the way from heaven. (laughs) Passionate. (laughs) Takes flesh, lives as a servant, and is passionate enough about his people to go to death for them. Do you understand? That's how much he loves his people. He's willing to embrace the cross out of love for his people. And that's passion. That's love. And then there's his power. Jesus is the resurrected king. He's the one who reveals himself in the middle of the desert to someone and strikes them dumb. And he's the one who's got the power to rework and rewire and renew hearts. And to make this guy, who hates the church so much that he kills people, the apostle of joy to the world, to kings. That's what Paul becomes. I hated the church and I killed them. And now I'm going to go serve the church everywhere till it kills me and tell them about Jesus. Oh, by the way, I love you. Read Philippians. Read Philippians. Joy and love everywhere. That dude wrote, that's this guy. Jesus completely redid his life. That's his power. And it's his plan to use us. To use people like Ananias and you and me. To bring that good news, that power, that passion to bear in their lives. And the problem is, we think we can't do it. We're afraid. We're afraid to get involved in the messiness of people's lives. We're afraid we're going to inconvenience them or inconvenience us. We're afraid they're going to judge us and think we're stupid because we believe in Jesus. We're afraid we're going to miss out. We're afraid we're going to get a B instead of an A. We're afraid. He's powerful. He's the resurrected king. He gave himself for you out of love. He gave himself for others out of love. You can do this. You should do this. You're going to do this. And uh, it'll be good. It really will. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these students.